Welcome to episode three of the Low Left Podcast with uh, me, your host, Brett Bass. And we're, we're continuing the theme of what we've been looking at with the Russo-Ukrainian War. So previously I outlined a variety of aspects to this that I wanted to talk about without necessarily knowing where I wanted to start. And then the, the previous episode uh, in which we talked about the status of things, tactics, operations, strategy, et cetera, and whatnot, uh, sort of the snapshot overview of, of, of kind of what was going on. The, this episode, I'd like to talk about the asymmetrical response to the Russo-Ukrainian war between Russia launching a military invasion of a sovereign neighbor and directing its military fighting forces against civilian population centers, but also the Ukrainian military, and the West's response, which is to send uh, weapons to help prop up the Ukrainian armed forces, but primarily engaging in economic sanctions of an unprecedented scale. And I'd like to talk about that from a couple of different angles. So the, the first thing that I want to look at is efficacy. How useful have these types of sanctions been historically at deterring aggression from other actors? How effective have they been at preventing continuing aggression from Russia itself? And I'd also like to look at uh, a different facet of this, which is the ethics of this type of response. So is it moral or ethical to be engaging in this? So to, to set the stage, I, I think it's, it's worth outlining, sort of sketching out the fact that Russia has been engaged in initially a hybrid warfare campaign against Ukraine ever since 2014. And in more recent history, from the 24th of February of 2022 forward, in a much more traditional European military campaign. In response, the West has, yes, we've done quite a bit to provide weapons to the Ukrainian armed services and, and probably a large chunk of its, its uh, civilian militia population as well. But I, I think the defining characteristic about the response, or at least the thing that, that everybody wants to make the biggest deal out of is the tremendous amount of economic sanction that we've levied against Russia. It's fascinating because these, these are not one-for-one one similar concepts, right? We have a military act of aggression by one, and we have an economic response by the other. And there's this really odd degree of asymmetry between these things. I, I, I think it's, it's a fair criticism uh, that one of the reasons that economic sanctions are so popular within the West is that uh, they don't require us on an individual level to do very much. So as a citizen of the United States of America, as somebody in the most prosperous of Western countries in an extremely prosperous civilization, that my elected leaders have chosen to engage in a variety of 
economic policy responses has not required me to do anything except for occasionally spend more money on certain products, which are now scarcer. And given a lot of the, the positioning of, of how these sanctions are described, um, it makes us feel good about what we're doing as a way of helping so we can do something to, to help the poor people of Ukraine. Um, a, a lot of how this has been formulated has been like devastating sanctions levied against Russia, etc. Things of things of that nature. Uh, and it's worth pointing out there's a, there's a kernel of truth to this. Like I, I think it's fair to describe the economic sanctions that we have levied uh, along with our, our European allies against Russia as, as largely economically unprecedented. Uh, Russia is at least in danger of becoming a gigantic North Korean pariah state in which conventional trade is simply denied it in, in large swaths. Now, there are key differences in that Russia has an extremely effective bargaining position in that they, they basically control European energy. Fossil fuels uh, may not be politically favorable in some circles, but are still unquestionably vital to the operation of a modern society. And Russia supplies vast proportions of the natural gas and some of the oil that is used to keep the lights on and the energy cheap in Western Europe. And it, it can sound pejorative or dismissive to say keep the energy cheap, but it's worth noting that there isn't that much elasticity in energy consumption markets. So even if people scrimp and save and they wear sweaters around the house instead of turning on the heater, there are just so many things that modern society requires energy to do. The, uh, the fact that I'm recording this on a laptop computer, which is powered by electricity, says that energy costs are important. There are huge numbers of people that are in white-collar jobs that do almost everything with the aid of a computer, which is powered by electricity. Uh, there is an increasing market for electrically powered, like battery electric vehicles that require power to work. And the burning of natural gas happens to be uh, an effective and efficient and costly um, or less costly way of generating electric power to do all of these things. And I, I think it's overly simplistic to say that we can substitute all of this for, air quotes, renewable sources. Are they going to play some sort of role? Absolutely. But when we look at efficiencies and economies of scale, energy density, and it, I don't believe that it's plausible that we can divorce ourselves entirely from these things. And evidentially, like it, this has been true. Like a lot of the efforts to move toward uh, allegedly greener energy sources has basically been that we outsource our pollution to countries that don't make as much money as us. In the case of here in the United States, it's all of the worst polluters have been moved out of the Rust Belt and into China. I, I think that's that's somewhat damning. And uh, in the case of energy production in Europe, it's been largely outsourced to the Russian Federation. And there's a degree of hubris that goes along with that. That we can feel good about ourselves for allegedly making cleaner greener energy decisions. 
But at the same time, like all it is is the pollution goes to other countries wherein the affluent people here in the West don't live. I, I think that's the uncharitable but worth considering way to view this. So in as much as from a security perspective and just sort of on a weird cosmic justice scale, I'm highly skeptical of, of this. Um, I'd like to get somewhat Machiavellian and, and start off by looking at how effective have these sanctions been historically. And I think the record is pretty clear, um, not very Look at some of the most consistently sanctioned countries on Earth. North Korea has been a global pariah, as I described it earlier, for decades. And that has done nothing to curtail the despotism and brutality of its dictatorship. That has done nothing to prevent it from furthering its grandiose ambitions of splitting the atom and creating nuclear weapons, which we're reasonably certain they've done. They continue testing ballistic missile technology. And they do so while huge numbers of their own people starve to death because the incentive structures for autocratic states are not the same as they are in democratic ones. And so the, the, the cost of consumer electronics is a potentially academically interesting point, but it isn't moving to someone who's willing to use anti-aircraft guns to you know, kill members of his, his own uh, country because he perceives them to be traitors. It's just not going to work. It's, it's ineffective. We have, an inc we have huge amounts of, of time as well. It's not like we can say, like, well, these are new things that we haven't tried before. Uh, the only difference is the scale. The scale of the current sanctions against Russia are vast, but the premise behind them is entirely familiar. And it hasn't worked to deter North Korean aggression from splitting the atom to make nukes. It hasn't prevented Iran from being the primary state sponsor of terrorism. And one of the two poles in the main geopolitical struggle in the Middle East Iranian-backed militias killed probably a couple of thousand uh, Americans in Iraq with explosively formed penetrators and infiltrators from the Revolutionary Guards Corps and everything sponsoring uh, training camps to get jihadists mobilized, organized, equipped, uh, and trained to conduct offensive operations against the United States and our coalition allies. It hasn't prevented Iran from attempting to absorb uh, the current democratic government of Iraq as a, a puppet state. It hasn't prevented the Iranians from heavily infiltrating Syria. It just hasn't worked. And it is clear that the Iranians are on course to develop nuclear weapons of their own. Did sanctions against Russia prevent the dismemberment and invasion of Georgia in 2008? No. Did economic sanctions against Russia prevent the dismemberment and annexation of parts of Ukraine in the uh, Donbass region and the Crimean Peninsula? 
in 2014? No. Did economic sanctions prevent Vladimir Putin from propping up a tin pot dictator and putting down a democratic reform movement in Belarus? No. The, the editors at National Review Magazine have opined uh, in more than one place that the United States needs to go back to school on the concept of deterrence. Deterrence definitionally means deterring somebody from conducting in a behavior that you don't want them to do. It means preventing somebody from furthering their goals if they run counter to yours. And the sanctions that we've been using have been deleterious to the well-being of the regular people that live in these countries, but they have not deterred them from continuing on their path toward nuclear arming or invasion of sovereign neighbors or in the destabilization and uh, subversion of other countries' governments. They, they don't work. I don't believe that the, the historical record on this is at all compelling. And it is mind-boggling to me that there are very well-paid, allegedly intelligent and credentialed people in very high echelons of government, the so-called experts, that are absolutely committed to this course of action as a way of furthering Western objectives and curtailing those of autocratic states. I mean, show me the track record. And I think that everyone will concur that if the objective was to prevent X country from doing Y bad thing, it may slow it down or stymie it, but it doesn't stop it. And I keep thinking about trying to talk to somebody whose family perhaps lives in what's left of Mariupol. Mariupol being a, a, a port city in the southeast of Ukraine, which is of apparently very, very high strategic and possibly um, operational, I cry that backwards, very high operational and possibly uh, strategic value to the Russians. Because seizing it will allow the southern invasion axis out of Crimea and the eastern invasion axis out of the Donbass region to connect with each other overland. And this will allow these two elements to mutually support each other, resupply and create a land bridge from Russia proper through occupied Ukrainian territory onto the Crimean Peninsula. It's very important. And the city itself has been largely destroyed, uh, but the people within it have still been resisting. With, I believe, Western estimates saying that 85% of the city itself has been damaged to some degree, which I think is an understatement. The photos that I've seen make it look like the place has largely ceased to exist as a functioning town of any sort. And there's still apparently something like 160,000 people who are almost all going to be uh, innocent civilians trapped there being shelled by Russian artillery. And just seeing the scale of the devastation of Mariupol alone, to say nothing of uh, the cratered remnants of the outskirts of places like Kharkiv or Urban, which has basically ceased to exist, or the smoking craters that are all that's left of you know a dozen other smaller towns 
uh, in the outskirts of Kiev in the north. I can't imagine being in a position to say to someone whose family is from there, like, yeah, yeah, that's terrible. And those Russian jerks, they came in, they, they destroyed everything. But uh, we definitely made it really hard to get McDonald's in St. Petersburg. And I know that's not a fashionable statement. And I know that it's not a charitable one either, that there are longer-lasting military implications to having a uh, significantly weakened economy. I get that. But the idea that the 20th Combined Arms Army is even going to know how the cost of consumer electronics in Vladivostok has gotten significantly worse, or that the Third uh, Tank Army is going to be deterred from firing canister shells into apartment buildings as a consequence of economic actions taken by the West. Like the, the idea that the Russian Black Sea's fleet is going to cease operations because... A, a sufficient number of billionaires' yachts have been seized by the Spanish. It, it's farcical. It's a non-response. What's happening is organized units of the Russian military and Navy are engaged in what are almost certainly war crimes and are certainly conducting traditional military operations against Ukrainian army and civilian population center targets and none of the behind the scenes economic wizardry that's allegedly being engaged in has anything to do whatsoever with stopping that from happening right now it is there are some reports coming from again western sources i might add and in as much as i do firmly believe that Western sources are going to be more reliable than those coming from inside of Russia, they still remain unconfirmed. And how much of this is coming from Ukraine? And again, in as much as I believe Ukraine is the aggrieved party and deserves to win, it's also worth noting that any state in its position would be engaging in the same sort of operation of, of uh, uh, propaganda. And so we don't we don't necessarily know. My previous episode was called Remember Folks, It's Foggy Out, because the fog of war is real, and we don't necessarily know what's going on. So seeing that there are some unconfirmed reports saying that, oh yes, the primary tractor factory, which makes tanks and armored vehicles for Russia, um, <coughs> has had to shut down due to a lack of raw materials and things from international parts. It's possible. It's even plausible. But do we know that that's happened? And even so, does that do anything to degrade in the immediate future, if not the present, like the ability for Russian troops to continue killing Ukrainians on the ground in Ukraine today? No. It means that Vladimir Putin's war aims will be more expensive to prosecute. It means that the ability for Russia to resupply will be made more challenging. These are fair things to point out. But 
if Ukraine ceases to exist because it's been subsumed into a neo-imperialist Russian nightmare state, they'll have plenty of time to reconstitute their losses after the Ukrainians themselves have been destroyed. So it's worth, once again, returning that idea from the editors at National Review. Western sanctions are very appealing to Western people because they don't require us to do very much, and we can market them to sound highly effective. I think that's, I think that's an uncharitable, but not at all inaccurate way to look at things. So I don't believe that these sanctions are going to be different. And part of that has to do with the fact that the psyche of the Russian people and their cultural context, their cultural traditions are different from ours. And they always have been. And I, I recognize that there is an impetus, a desire to find the common humanity amongst all peoples and interpret that as saying, look, we have so much more in common than we have dividing us. I think there's a certain optimistic nobility there. And one of my enduring memories from my time in Kabul, Afghanistan was always marveling at this flag circle they had immediately outside the PAX terminal at North Kabul Area International Airport, which was the, the NATO installation that was uh, the last uh, NATO-controlled space in the country, ironically. And this flag circle, very literal, it's a circle of flags, had the, the national ensigns for all the countries that had contributed troops to help in Afghanistan. And I remember always being moved, my idealistic self, by looking at that and thinking, this is like the poorest, most dangerous place on the planet, and we've pulled dozens of countries together to try and help. So I get it. I understand the impetus to find that sort of common thread of humanity but I don't think that is sufficient to understand cultural and tribal traditions, especially in a possibly post-global phase. One of the failings, I think, of post-Cold War America has been understanding that other cultures have other ways of seeing the world and different priorities. I had a number of issues with President George W. Bush, but he was my first commander-in-chief. And one of the things I do miss about the way the man spoke was in his ability to articulate very clear moral statements. I think that we could use quite a bit more of that today. That's a tangent, however. 
that said, I remember him talking about how it is the desire of all peoples to be free. And that resonated with me because I'm an American. And because individual liberty is the cornerstone of what gave rise to the American Republic and our Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that followed it. And I believe that. I do. And that is a sincerely held individual belief of mine that comes from the culture in which I grew up and our centuries of tradition and the philosophies that gave rise to our country. And inasmuch as I believe those things and millions of other Americans believe those things, it is not the case that other people outside of our American context hold the same values. To many, the idea of individual liberty and personal freedom is interesting. And many countries will pay lip service to the idea, but they'll mean entirely different things than what we do. And occasionally, while I think it's fair to say that uh, one of the cultural criticisms about the United States that we've flirted too much with libertinism as opposed to libertarianism. Uh, and this has led to any number of frays and tears within our social fabric. Sure. But these are alien disputes to a lot of people. And the people that live in Russia have really never lived in a high-functioning democratic society. And the ideas that go along with that, that, that nurture it and would sustain it, simply have never taken root there the same way that they have in the United States or, or other Western countries. And I was reading a, a piece by an author who spent a fair amount of his youth in the 1990s, traveling through Eastern Europe and eventually into Russia itself. And at one point, over drinks with his Russian hosts, uh, after he'd been doing this for some time, as a writer, he was planning to put together an article. And the people he was staying with basically told him not to bother because no matter what he wrote, it would clearly be written by somebody who didn't understand the Russian people. He was taken aback. He's like, oh, I've spent all this time here and I've lived with you. What do you mean? He's like, you view this as a place filled with people that view the world the same way that you do as an American. It just isn't so. And I think there's a lot of value to that. And having minimal formal study, I've taken a couple of classes in college on Russia and the history of it. I'm not an expert on this. But I think it's worth noting that the way that we see the world is not necessarily the same as other people viewing it. I think this is certainly true in the case of, of the East. And Russia in particular brings to mind something known as the Uncanny Valley. And for, for those of you that aren't familiar with this topic, the Uncanny Valley is the idea that in between two different extremes of artificially created human likeness, so <coughs> if you imagine... Um, robots, for example. On the one hand, you have C-3PO from Star Wars, who is human-shaped, but he's shiny gold, and he has, like, headlights for eyeballs, 
and his mouth is just a horizontal slit that doesn't go anywhere. There's nothing threatening about C-3PO in appearance or demeanor, and Anthony Daniels plays him, so he's stiff naturally. It is what it is. On the other hand, if you start making intensely lifelike human replica robots, at a certain point, all of the subtle wrongness of it adds up, and it becomes deeply, deeply uncanny, and as a result, off-putting, unsettling, and, and disturbing. That's the uncanny valley. So between, on the one hand, you've got C-3PO, on the other hand, you've got something that looks just like a human face. In between those two things, the uncanny valley in which there's just enough hard-to-articulate wrongness that it looks artificial and it throws you off. So if you've ever gone to like a science museum and they have, particularly like a child's science museum, right? And they've got the exhibit where you can look at yourself in a mirror, but it's a mirror that like bisects you uh, vertically right down the middle. And so you get a reflection of yourself that's just two right halves or two left halves. Well, nobody is symmetrical and seeing that you wouldn't imagine would look strange, but it always does, right? That's kind of Russia. Russia looks at first glance like a normal European country, right? They've got some unique you know, onion top architecture and whatnot, but they also use a lot of similar construction methods. They have nightclubs and there's some like of that ultra modern construction and it looks like it ought to be familiar, but it's just not quite the same. And there's layers to this, right? There's sort of this long standing, like centuries old sort of paranoiac um, attitude within, within Russia, going all the way back to the days of the czars, that there's always some sort of external something that is, going after them. There, there's someone or some country or some other empire or some thing that's out to get them. And and maybe this comes from like the Mongol hordes or, or whatever, but there's always been that sort of like knee-jerk concept that Russia is besieged or that it's infiltrated or that there's someone or something out to get it. And I, I think that's a much more powerful cultural factor in Russia than it is for us in the West. And that can be challenging for people to grow. And there's much more to it as well. And of course, they went for decades, like 70-ish years under the Iron Curtain, where they were a communist empire. And it, it leads to Russia being this uncanny valley of nearly the same, but significantly alien. And it makes it hard for us, particularly given that so few people really immerse themselves into other cultures. I've met a lot of people that have done vacationing internationally, and I, I haven't. I, I've spent all of my time outside of uh, the United States, particularly, like I said, I've been to Canada on vacation a few times. Canada's America's hat. There's, there's a lot of similarity there. Uh, I think that the United States and Canada are, are two remarkably similar places, right? But all of my time spent in Europe and, and the Middle East has been 
in, in uniform. And so I didn't get to do any, you know, glamour tourism. I, I haven't been to the Eiffel Tower and the sort of sanitized Disney version of what Europe looks like. I went to Latvia and I barely even saw Riga, the capital. Uh, our landing site was built in the woods on the, the ocean, uh, I guess the, the North Sea, uh, Baltic Sea, outside of a town called Lepaya. And so when we got Liberty and we were actually able to see it, it was going to this place that is not a tourist trap per se. And being able to see the different types of architecture, that there's this interesting mesh. There's like this layer at the bedrock of like this very old, like traditional European construction that had been damaged and, and weathered and yet maintained, but large chunks were missing. And then in its place, there was a series of like decomposing mushrooms of Soviet tenements where these just stark, totally uh, lifeless concrete structures were still in evidence. And some of them in just totally incoherent locations. Like it was really clear to me there's some random commissar with a, a map in, in, in Moscow saying like, and here comrade, we build apartment complex because it's, far away from wherever and it's not going to get crowded or something. It didn't make any sense to people that actually lived there or wanted to, but it made perfect sense to some central plan or someplace. And then seeing being built on top of that, this layer, like very modern, uh, like lots of glass and steel European construction and being able to interact with the locals, you know, some of whom spoke passable English and just seeing this, sort of pervasive skepticism that reflected Latvia's tradition of being uh, suckered by major powers for their entire modern history. It, it wasn't the hordes of flag-waving people. Oh, goodness, the Americans are here. The hospitality industry hadn't taken over the place. Again, it wasn't, it wasn't a theme park. It was just a city in Eastern Europe that had been occupied by the Soviets and the Nazis before that. And I think a lot of affluent folks in the West don't get to see that or choose not to. Not everybody lives the way that we do. And I think it's very important for us to remember that and to respect it. For me, the experience has always been one of reassuring me because not everyone lives the way that we do. And I've appreciated what I have here at home domestically so much more as a result. And I mean, quality of life is part of it, like the abundance of everything that we have here and the relative safety that we have from external attack and, and even internally from domestic crime, or at least in the areas that, that I've lived, I've assiduously tried not to live in uh, particularly high crime areas, right? Not everybody is as fortunate, uh, but also in terms of like the, the systems and the philosophy, things like the, the bicameral legislature. I, I appreciate so much more, after having seen how 
much simpler it is to pervert parliamentary systems, for example. Or the idea that immigration is attainable. I know, I know, I know our immigration system is not particularly high-functioning and that there is widespread uh, dissatisfaction with how it works. I'm not saying any of this to obviate those things, but when I was in Kuwait interacting with the locals there, most of the locals weren't really the locals. Most of the locals with whom I interacted were third country nationals because the Kuwaitis themselves don't work. They receive a living stipend from the state and they hire people from the Philippines or Pakistan or India to do all the actual work for them. And when the population of these third country nationals gets too great, they just kick them out, <laughs> just send them home. Like, oh crap, there's far too many Pakistanis. We better kick a bunch of them out. Oh no, there are too many Christians. We better remove some of them. And there's no hope for any of these people to go become Kuwaiti citizens. You cannot become a citizen of Kuwait. You must be born a citizen of Kuwait. I, I, I mean, that's, that's something. That's, that's crazy. It's still very much the case that heredity is one of the most important factors to individual success in that system. And there are explicit legal differences in how certain people are treated based on their happenstance of birth. The, the Bedouins have a completely different legal classification from everybody else that lives there. And that's just incoherent uh, to a lot of Westerners, particularly Americans, that, that you could have a completely different set of laws and still live in the same place. And I don't mean like on the margins that there are certain trends within categories of the population that indicate, no, I mean like in black and white letter of the law, like these people are treated that way and those people are treated this way. And that's how it is. Like people don't appreciate it. We, we argue so much about things on the margins here. And we, we ought to, again, part of our national identity is in our founding documents and the, basic philosophies that gave rise to our republic, we're always striving for a more perfect union. But at the same time, like it's hard to appreciate that uh, and see in context that the margin cases that we get so in excised about are just qualitatively different from of the way that the rest of the world is generally managed. And of course, spending time in Afghanistan where things like traffic laws are, are just unknown. The place is war-torn and, and poor and had been defoliated by the Soviets when they invaded. And just... I look at what we have here and yeah, I, I, there's a lot wrong... And I have a lot of serious concerns, but I appreciate it a lot more for having spent time outside of the United States.
and not in the parts of it that are set up to cater to affluent American tourists. And without that degree of cultural humility and cultural uh, understanding, it's hard for people to understand that those ideas of individual freedom that mean something very specific and very important to us just don't necessarily have the same value or any value outside of our borders. And the Russians just view things differently. This is not a condemnation of the Russian people, I might add. Russia has an incredible history that goes back a thousand years. And this segues into my next point about morality. But to finish off the efficacy argument, the sanctions, we sanction the people of Russia, and it is not clear that the government of Russia is prevented from continuing its war of aggression. I think this speaks to a, a, a serious ethics thing. I believe there's a morality angle to this. We are immiserating the populace of Russia, the average everyday people that live there. And they're already under the thumb of a totalitarian dictator. I guess that's the maximalist interpretation. At minimum, this is an autocratic strongman who has been more or less the unifying central figure of Russian state power for decades. That in and of itself is unfortunate. And <laughs> venturing back into the efficacy argument, I'm not at all convinced that when all of the McDonald's and Nike shops and Starbucks and everything go away and food has to get rationed and everything's expensive and the Russian stock market collapses and inflation soars up to 20 or 30%, I'm not convinced that the average everyday Russian person is going to look at that and be like, ah, that Vladimir Putin. No, what's probably going to happen is borrowing off that long-standing cultural paranoia and decades of state media telling the Russians that everything bad in their lives is the fault of the United States in particular and the West in general. I have to believe that that's the lens that they're going to view this through. This sort of bizarre concept that we're going to inspire the Russian people to revolt and throw Vladimir Putin out of power, I think is totally, completely wrongheaded. I don't see any significant signs that that's at all plausible. Now, again, centuries of cultural tradition and decades of state-run media telling them that all these bad things are happening because the West did them. And in this case, like, it's true. Like, the West did levy these sanctions against 
the regular people of, of Russia. I know the intent being that we were going to you know, grind the uh, Russian state to a halt or whatever nonsense, but it, it's doing so by going after just everyone else. This is the economic equivalent of, you know, dropping the, the atomic bombs against uh, targets in Japan. Why did we have to do that? Because we didn't have precision. Like, what we had was, like, fly bombers over it and, and drop explosives into cities with the intent that we're going to try to, like, knock out industrial capacities or, or dissuade the government from doing something by, how, by slaughtering its people on an industrial scale. Now... Are these sanctions going to slaughter people on industrial scale? No. Will they probably result in some, you know, margin cases death? Yeah, probably, right? People that can't afford food, whatever. It's possible. It's arguable. But what this is doing unquestionably is immiserating people at a, a historic rate. And our intention is somewhat explicitly that if we make the regular people suffer enough, a consequence of this will be that that suffering is justifiable because we might be able to grind the Russian economy down to the point where it can no longer sustain a war effort, and or that if we make them suffer enough, eventually they will do our work for us and depose their national leader. I'm pausing for some degree of dramatic effect and also because I'm not totally sure how I want to phrase this next part. But there's this odd symmetry, like an asymmetry, if you will. But right now, because Russia appears to be stalled in the consummation of its military aims of destroying the Ukrainian forces, for example, that they have defaulted to going behind their heavy artillery and bombarding cities. And so their military is targeting civilians because their military is not capable of accomplishing their war aims. And so they are hoping that by causing incredible death and suffering amongst the civilian population, the Ukrainians will blink. And we're not doing something that's completely dissimilar. No, we're not parking howitzers outside of St. Petersburg and opening fire. No, we're not machine gunning people. No, we're not bombing, what was it, a uh, theater filled with people and killing 300 civilians. We're not doing that. But what we are doing is turning the screws on the civilian population of the Russian state in the hopes that the Russian state will blink. Yes, I appreciate that these are qualitative differences, that there is a significant bright red line, meaningful difference between deliberately blowing up a hospital and cutting off somebody's bank accounts. I get that. But the intention is not far removed. And there's a certain degree of, I'll just say it, cowardice associated with this that we are not content with our strange, are we in or not, uh, 
unwillingness to commit to some sort of meaningful on the ground military something. And when I say this, I'm, I'm using the word military in a very broad sense here. I believe that there is a moral argument for Western troops, including Americans and or NATO, to directly assert themselves in Ukraine and to militarily defeat Russia. And I appreciate the fact that I am in an extreme minority here and not many of my countrymen or colleagues are as invested in the concept of military intervention as I am. And I appreciate the fact that this does call serious debate for serious questions about something uh, regarding nuclear war. I get that. Nuclear war is a serious topic and deserves to be taken seriously. That said, if our objective is to prevent the military slaughter of civilians in Ukraine and the military violation of the sovereignty of the state of Kuwait, Kuwait, Ukraine, um, and our response is only economic, it, it's incoherent. It isn't going to work. When I say military in this, I'm also talking about like sending supplies to the Ukrainians. We are, if we are not going to get directly involved ourselves, which I believe is at least morally correct, in as much as it may not be prudentially correct, I'm willing to allow for that to be the case. Um, our willingness to provide these arms militarily doesn't appear to be anywhere near as tall as I think it needs to be. We had a done deal by which the Polish, and I, I believe a couple of other countries, including Slovakia and possibly Hungary, would donate their MiG-29 fighter jets to the Ukrainians to replace combat losses of theirs with the idea that they would then backfill those airframes with more modern Western design. I think F-16s was probably what they were going to wind up getting. We, we export F-16s everywhere in their dog. Um, and at the very last minute, the decision was made that we wouldn't do this. Now, without knowing the actual motivation why, it is possible that there is like a, a good version of why that was done, which I still think is wrongheaded. And I think that there is a bad version of why that was done. The good version would be there's sensitive equipment in these planes we can't afford the Russians to get their hands on. <coughs> I don't find that especially compelling, but it's at least morally fair. It's in, it's in scope of what is permissible. Um, but if the decision was made, we don't want to potentially scare the Russians by providing equipment. I think that's totally insane. And we've simply conceded that if you have enough nuclear weapons, or if you have any nuclear weapons, frankly, uh, it, it's dubious that North Korea has more than a handful. But if you have nuclear weapons, you can be as evil a dictator as you want, and you'll get away with anything because nobody wants to get nuked. And so it gives you permanent veto authority over everything else forever. And there's no limiting principle on this that I've been able to ascertain. And if we're not willing to continue supporting the Ukrainians militarily with the equipment that they have explicitly said that they need, which I will believe them about in this regard, like, yeah, I believe there's some degree of propaganda aim for everything, but it's in Ukraine's best interest to survive militarily and to win. I believe them when they say these are the equipment uh, that we require. And if we opt not to do that, 
we are providing them just barely enough equipment to not lose, but we're not giving them equipment to win. So we're basically saying, like, if you just die at a slow enough rate, that'll be okay. And instead, we'll levy sanctions against the Russians. It's wild. I don't think that that is moral. So that's, that's where we are with sanctions. That's the Western response. We have invoked policies that give the executive branch of the United States the unilateral ability to declare that people or organizations are acting improperly. And as a consequence, we can then seize their property without the act of due process. And in order to have that property restored to you, it then becomes incumbent upon the accused party to physically come to the United States and then prove that they are not, in fact, a bad actor. I was just listening to an interview with uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano. He outlined a, an interesting case that this probably is not constitutional, but nobody is willing to get the degree of standing necessary by uh, being charged in federal court with one of these things. Uh, <laughs> that's a challenge. I don't believe that these sanctions are moral. I totally reject the idea that they're going to be effective. And if our motivation is simply to inflict some sort of cosmic revenge against the Russian people in general, this is wildly wrongheaded. It's worth remembering that the United States, I, I do believe, is among the finest countries that has been created. But we do have all the same human failings and fallibilities that are part of the human condition. Earlier I talked about, like, find the common touchstones of our shared humanity or whatever. Uh, some of those touchstones are tribalistic and base and vile. And in the Second World War, which is about the, the last military campaign that Americans are willing to agree was, was worthwhile, uh, we imprisoned enormous numbers of Japanese Americans in the United States without proper due process because they looked like people we were at war with. Some of those people that were interned are still alive today. This is in living memory. And in as much as I think uh, some, but not all, but some of the fears surrounding Islamophobia that sprung up after 9-11 were inflated, it is still the case that there was a national flailing, a moral panic along these lines. And there are indicators that occasionally we've flirted with that idea recently. There was a Russian restaurant in New York that was vandalized. And I, I think that a lot of the non-state sanction of private businesses going on the warpath against Russia uh, is part of a related idea. I think the concept is similar, and I don't believe it's necessarily great.
private businesses, of course, have every right to do business where they want. And the idea that we don't want any of our brand name to be associated with anything being done by the Russian government, I don't think is illegitimate. But I think it's worth saying that we should be cautious of moral panic in these regards. And it's also worth highlighting the strange hypocrisy wherein there is this sudden moral clarity about what is being done in Russia's name by Vladimir Putin, motivating people to distance themselves from doing business in Russia, but maybe not with energy sales. We might still want some of that sweet, sweet, cheap natural gas. And we might still want to do business in China in spite of them illegally seizing Hong Kong and Tibet and having concentration camps and overt plans to militarily seize Taiwan. And anyway, that's where I am on the Western response. I believe that if we're going to arm the Ukrainians, and that's as far as we're willing to get involved, then we should arm them, and we should arm them with the ability to counterattack. If it is the case, as open source intelligence indicates, that the Russian offensive has stalled, this is the opportunity for the Ukrainians to regain the initiative and go on the attack, but they have to win, and they have to win decisively. And to do that, they require something more than Stinger missiles and javelins. And as it pertains sanctions, I think we've outlined why it is I think they're going to be ineffective and why I think they are of dubious morality. So that's what I've got for episode three. We have a military campaign with an economic response. It's asymmetrical. And uh, we'll resume again later and we'll discuss the next in our series of topics about the Russo-Ukrainian War. Until next time.